This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I shall begin with an early poem called Legal Fiction. Uh, this is what they called a conceit. A hundred years ago, a British teenager got drunk on poetry. His name was William Empson. Uh, the queerness of the incident and the characters takes on a Wordsworthian grandeur and aridity. This is a recording of Empson giving a public reading at Harvard in 1960. By then, he was a famous literary critic. He worshipped language. And most of all, he was intoxicated by Shakespeare. And much of the technique of the rudeness of the Mad Hatter has been learned from Hamlet. As a boy, Emerson read all the plays, all the sonnets. He was entranced by the words with multiple meanings. For as you were when first your eye I eyed, such seems your beauty still. The words swam on the page. To be or not to be, that is the question. They changed shapes. Emson came to think of language as a kind of a code. The text had to be interrogated if you wanted to unlock its secrets. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day. In 1930, at just 24 years old, Emson published his first book, Seven Types of Ambiguity an investigation of how to read, and more so, how to think, how to decode the hidden meanings of language. The book became a cornerstone of modern literary criticism. Maybe you read it in college. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour... In 1938, as the world approached the brink of a catastrophic war, Emson's book, fell into the hands of an English major at Yale named James Angleton. Angleton was a strange kind of genius. He cultivated an air of mystery. His roommate, the poet Reed Whittemore, remembered how he'd disappear for days on fishing trips, but return with no fish. At Yale, Angleton edited an influential literary magazine named Furioso. He especially loved the modernist poets like T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound. They shattered the rules of language the same way that Picasso shattered the rules of painting. Angleton came to know those poets personally. They became friends, and they shared a vision of the world that nothing was exactly what it seemed. Angleton loved language the same way Empson did. After reading Seven Types of Ambiguity, he invited Emson to lecture at Yale, where they interrogated texts together. And then, Angleton started applying their methods to something other than poetry. December 7, 1941. No American will ever forget this Sunday morning in Hawaii. After the United States entered World War II, it created a secret intelligence agency called the Office of Strategic Services, 
the OSS. Unlikely as it sounds, many of America's wartime intelligence officers came from university language departments. Angleton's English professor, Norman Holmes Pearson, became the chief OSS counterintelligence officer in London. He recruited his star pupil to join him there. Angleton's codename was Artifice. The veterans of the OSS helped create the organization we all now know, the Central Intelligence Agency. Jim Angleton became one of the CIA's founding officers in 1947, and William Emson's literary criticism formed the intellectual core of his spycraft. Angleton called his work at the CIA the practical criticism of ambiguity. When Angleton joined the OSS as a counterintelligence officer, his aim had been foiling Nazi spies. But at the CIA, he focused on America's new foe, the Soviet Union. We began to acquire information which showed that there were two wars going on, and the Soviets had no desire whatsoever that the world be molded in a Western fashion. Here's Angleton years later describing his work in a television interview. The first war presumably being between the Allies and Germany and Japan, and the second war being... Being world domination, global war. By? By the Soviet Union. Counterintelligence is the art of catching enemy spies and protecting your own from being captured. Deception is in its DNA. You can't let yourself be fooled by the ambiguities in what you see, or you'll be caught like a trout deceived by a well-tied fly. Why do we need intelligence at all? For survival. Fundamentally for survival. Angleton would arrive at CIA headquarters late in the morning. His office was shrouded in heavy curtains, dimly lit hazy with cigarette smoke, piled with scattered files. His lunch hours lasted long into the afternoon. He drank like a fish. Through it all, he was secretive and suspicious. In conversation, he hinted at dark secrets, far too sensitive to share. Angleton saw counterintelligence as a wilderness of mirrors. Nothing about the Soviet Union could be taken at face value. And it presents to the West, by the various themes that it promulgates, what I call a wilderness of mirrors. They can have you believe whatever they desire you to believe. Angleton once claimed he invented the phrase... In fact, he found it in T.S. Eliot's poem, Geronchi. Excite the membrane when the sense has cooled with pungent sauces. Multiply variety in a wilderness of mirrors. What will the spider... Angleton loved that poem so much that he wanted it read at his funeral. After such knowledge, what forgiveness? Think now. History has many cunning passages, contrived corridors and issues. Disease with... 
Angleton wandered deep into the wilderness. He came to believe that the Soviet intelligence service, the KGB, commanded a company of moles within the CIA. And he was convinced that these moles and other double agents in the American government were part of a monstrous plot. A plot to deceive the White House, the Pentagon, and the American intelligence community. To seduce American presidents into the delusion of detente with Moscow. And to destroy America's resolve to stop communism from conquering the world. We believe that the agreements that we have reached this week will contribute to the peaceful world that everybody here wants and that the General Secretary and I have been working for in our respective positions. Angleton thought Nixon's rapprochement with the Russians was a snare and a delusion. He saw arms control agreements as suicide. And so Angleton began to wage a secret war against his own government. I'm Tim Weiner, and this is Whirlwind. On today's episode, the story of James Angleton, his search for a spy that didn't exist, and the terrible consequences of that futile search. Angleton's view of the world was shaped by an early act of Soviet deception. In the 1920s, after the Bolshevik Revolution, Soviet spies took aim at their opponents, the Russian exiles living in Europe, and enemy spies everywhere. The key underground resistance movement to the Kremlin was this underground group called the Monarchist Union of Central Russia. That's John Seifer. He's a former CIA officer who spent 25 years running operations against the Russians. And it operated secretly throughout Europe and even inside Soviet Union. And it brought together all the enemies of the nascent Soviet state. But the monarchist union of central Russia was not what it appeared to be. It was a facade, a false flag operation, an illusion. It was a Soviet creation. Their spies posed as members of a resistance movement that wanted to overthrow the new communist regime. They invited the real counter-revolutionaries into secret underground meetings. And then, once they had lured their enemies into their spiderweb, they captured them, interrogated them, and then they killed them. As, as this organization became, you know, seemingly more and more powerful and pulled in more people from British secret services and the French secret services and others to, you know, understand what was the opposition to the, the Bolsheviks, it turns out the entire thing was a trap. The Soviet operation had a code name, trust. That was the mission, to create trust and then betray it. They hoodwinked all of the established intelligence services in Europe, and they essentially collected information on everybody who was a potential threat to the regime and killed them all. The trust destroyed the core of the Russian resistance. It captured and executed Sidney Riley, one of Britain's top spies, and the model for James Bond. And it ran undetected for five years, from 1921 
1926 until Stalin's secretary defected to the British and told them all about it. What's fascinating to me is, is how one of the first things they did is run one of these sophisticated traps you know, against the West. And I think they take great pride in the fact that they use that model of how to deceive and subvert as something they take great pride in and tried to continue over time. John Seifer wasn't the only CIA officer who praised the quality of Soviet espionage. Rolf Maut Larsen did two tours in Russia and served as the chief of the CIA station in Moscow. I always use this point. I, some people now just roll their eyes when I say it, when I talk to my colleagues. The Russians have never disappointed me in the dark side of what they're doing. I was known as what they call a dark sider inside the agency, taking after Angleton and, and, and realizing that, well, my goodness, they never cease to amaze me on how far and deep they go on counterintelligence machinations. And the trust is a good example of it. The trust shaped Angleton's understanding of the secret world and his war against the KGB. It confirmed what he had learned from the poets, that nothing was exactly what it seemed. Later in life, Angleton was fond of saying, deception is a state of mind and the mind of the state. Rothbaud Larson thinks he was on to something. Deception is the mind of the state, and you almost have to go to that level of paranoia to really get into the Russian mindset. They're very extremely effective. I know I'm sounding admiring when I say this, but they're extremely effective at counterintelligence. Their culture is more laden with that. It's more rich in many ways than the American uh, uh, counterparts. So we have to, to get into their heads and and play these games, I think adopt much of Angleton's uh, sort of thinking. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Sitting in his dark, smoky office, at CIA headquarters, Angleton would read through the counterintelligence files of the 1930s and 40s. He saw that Soviet spies had a 10-year head start on the FBI. They had cleaned America's clock, running and recruiting American spies inside the government of the United States. I spoke to Alexander Vasilyev, a former KGB officer turned journalist who described how the first Soviet spies made inroads into the United States. He explained that President Roosevelt allowed the Soviets to open an embassy in Washington and a consulate in New York City in 1933. They were dens of espionage. There were uh, Soviet illegals operating in the United States in 1920s and early 1930s, What changed with the opening of the embassy and the consulate in New York is there were more spies, and those spies had diplomatic immunity, which is important, because in the case of their arrest, they couldn't be sent to prison. 
they had to be extradited and uh, sent back to the Soviet Union. That's very important difference between legals and illegals. The rapid expansion of the federal government in the 1930s also gave Soviet spies and their American agents an opening. When uh, President Roosevelt created the New Deal, uh, many new government organizations were created, which needed a lot of well-educated people as officials. So they started hiring those people without properly vetting them. There was no or very poor security vetting. And in fact, many of them were secret members of the U.S. Communist Party. Soviet espionage flourished with the help of the Communist Party of the United States. The network of uh, secret sources was created by the leader of the U.S. Communist Party, Earl Browder. People see, the people understand. What they need is a voice to express it for them and an organization to rally them. Who was using this network of secret communists. The secret communists meaning they they didn't go to communist manifestations. Uh, They were not openly doing these communist activities. They were secret and they were working as informants of the leadership of the Communist Party. American counter-spies were blind to all this. FBI agents confronting Soviet espionage during World War II were like children lost in the woods. That's what the State Department's Lawrence Duggan, a communist agent himself, told the Soviet intelligence officer who debriefed him. Americans working for the Kremlin burrowed deep into the heart of the national security establishment of the United States. Here again, former CIA officer John Seifer. And in World War II, they had penetrated our atomic program so effectively that they could cross-check reporting with other sources. The Soviets essentially knew more about the Manhattan Project to create the atomic bomb than Roosevelt's own vice president, Truman. They were running spies in our State Department. They were running They were running spies in our Treasury Department, in the Congress. So by the time we did create an OSS, essentially all of their reporting was being funneled to Moscow because they had so many sources inside. And after the CIA was created in 1947, it became Jim Angleton's highest calling to make sure that Soviet spies wouldn't penetrate the agency's secret operations. The early CIA wanted to do what the OSS had done in World War II, parachute its agents behind enemy lines. But now, that line was the Iron Curtain. These operations were as high risk as you can get. The CIA recruited foreign agents throughout war-torn Europe. Most of them were exiles and emigres fleeing the Soviet Empire. The CIA trained them at a secret base in West Germany. And then it dropped them into Poland, Ukraine, and even Russia itself. The goal was to set up spy networks and underground resistance armies, to undermine the Soviets, and to fight World War III if it came to that. The CIA was looking for a weak spot in the Iron Curtain and its leaders thought that among all the nations under Stalin's grip, the weakest was the tiny country of Albania. 
The Albanian operation was codenamed FIEND. For five years, starting in 1949, the CIA and British intelligence sent small groups of fighters to Albania by air and by boat. Team after team met disaster. Every time the guerrillas parachuted in, security forces were there to meet them. Many lives were lost. Nearly 300 men in all. The secret police caught almost all of them, and the KGB used those prisoners to run another deception operation. The captured agents were tortured and compelled to send radio messages back to the CIA, saying that they had succeeded. So the CIA sent more men with the same result. It took the CIA years to understand what had happened. Angleton coordinated these missions, every last detail, with a trusted friend in British intelligence. Angleton had met him and befriended him while in wartime London with the OSS. His name was Kim Philby. Philby was born in India, where his father worked for the British Raj. He had perfect manners, a slight stammer, and an unquenchable thirst for alcohol. By 1949, Philby was the most senior British intelligence officer stationed in Washington. He enjoyed many a liquid lunch with Angleton. They planned operations together, including the Albanian mission. What Angleton knew, Philby knew. In 1951, two of Philby's closest British colleagues in Washington, Guy Burgess and Donald McLean, were suspected by the FBI of spying for the Soviets. Soon enough, they disappeared. It turned out they had defected to Moscow, and Philby went back to London under a cloud of suspicion. He had worked closely with those traitors, after all. British intelligence investigated Philby, but in the end, they cleared him. Mr. Harold Philby, on the right, holds a press conference to deny charges that he was involved in the disappearance of Burgess and McLean. The 43-year-old former Foreign Office diplomat has challenged his accuser, an MP, to repeat the charges outside the Commons. Mr. Philby, you were asked to resign yourself from the Foreign Office a few months after Burgess and McLean disappeared, and Mr. McMillan has said that you had had communist associations. Is that why you were asked to resign? The last time I spoke to a communist, knowing that he was a communist, was sometime in 1934. Angleton didn't believe that Philby could be a communist spy. But in 1963 came the proof when Philby defected to Moscow. Eighteen years later, in 1981, Philby gave a speech to members of the Stasi, the East German intelligence service. In it, he described the simplicity of his schemes. Every evening I left the office with a big briefcase full of reports which I had written myself, full of files taken out of the actual documents, out of the actual archives. I used to hand them to my Soviet contact in the evening. Next morning I'd get the file back, the contents having been photographed, and take them back early in the morning and put the files back in their place. That I did regularly, year in, year out. Philby's deception forever changed Angleton. 
and the future of American counterintelligence. More on that after this short break. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Philby and four of his Cambridge University schoolmates had become Soviet agents in the 1930s. The Cambridge Five, as they came to be known, had served in British intelligence throughout World War II. This double cross by a trusted confidant changed Angleton forever. After Philby, he trusted no one. If the British elite of Trinity College, Cambridge, was rife with spies. Couldn't the same happen here, among the Ivy Leaguers who ran the CIA? Throughout the 1950s and early 1960s, a series of catastrophic intelligence failures had struck the CIA like hammer blows. The CIA's most valuable Soviet agents were captured and executed by the KGB between 1960 and 1962. The chief of the West German Intelligence Service, a service created by the CIA, was tried and convicted as a longtime Kremlin agent. And then came Philby's betrayal. Angleton tried to make sense of it all. He became obsessed with his nightmare vision of the KGB sending double agents to deceive him. Here again, Rolf Mowat Larson. Those famous British Gang of Five informed so much of this counterintelligence culture we're talking about. And now what I would call the American version of it, I think that's what Angleton was sort of trapped in from the moment that uh, Nosenko, one of the first Russian defectors, came to the United States in the 1960s. In 1964, a KGB officer named Yuri Nosenko defected to the CIA. Earlier, while on a spying assignment at an arms control conference in Geneva, he'd gotten drunk. He'd been rolled by a prostitute, robbed of the money for his espionage mission. He had figured it was safer to defect to America than to face the music in Moscow. So he approached the American delegation in Geneva. He identified himself to an American diplomat, and more than a year later, when he saw an opening, he jumped into the CIA's arms. Nosenko revealed vital information about Soviet agents who had penetrated American and European embassies. He told the CIA about microphones that the Russians had planted at the American embassy in Moscow. And, most important, he said he had read the KGB file on Lee Harvey Oswald. Oswald was a Marine, trained as a sharpshooter. 
1959, he defected to the Soviet Union. Naturally, the KGB kept an eye on him. Oswald spent two and a half years living in Minsk, married a Russian woman, and then got homesick. He had never renounced his American citizenship, and so he came back to the United States in 1962. A lot about Oswald remains a mystery. But one thing we know for sure. On November 22nd, 1963, in Dallas, Texas, he shot President Kennedy with a mail-order rifle. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. A few months later, Yuri Nasenko told the CIA that contrary to their suspicions, Oswald had never been a KGB agent. Nasenko told the FBI the KGB considered Oswald mentally abnormal, possibly an American agent, decided not to try to recruit him. Angleton didn't buy it. He feared that Nasenko had been sent by the Soviets to deceive the United States about the Kennedy assassination. He believed that if the CIA could break Nasenko, the master plot might be revealed and the Soviet conspiracy behind the assassination solved. But Angleton had misread the ambiguities. Angleton and his colleagues decided to lock Nasenko up in a secret prison on the CIA's training grounds, a military base outside Williamsburg, Virginia. The CIA kept him there for more than three years. A cinderblock cell, a hard steel bed, nothing to read, a bare light bulb burning all night, and harsh, sometimes brutal interrogation. He was not allowed to lie down during the day after he'd gotten up at 0600 in the morning, and he was not to hear anybody speak except on those occasions when the interrogators came to interrogate him. Nasenko got the treatment that his fellow Russians had received in the Gulag. In the end, the CIA director, Richard Helms, reluctantly concluded that Angleton had been deluded. The agency changed its mind, decided Nasenko was a genuine defector. Nasenko was not a Soviet double agent. He was allowed to go free. I have never seen a worse handled operation in the course of my association with the intelligence business. He received $80,000 from the American government for his trouble. And his story was later turned into an HBO movie. Tommy Lee Jones stars in Yuri Nosenko, KGB. When you talk about James Jesus Angleton, one of his views during those sort of dark days was is that the Russians were sending um, fake defectors. I think that's something that has been talked about over the years, and, and Angleton certainly believed it. But I'm not aware that there was ever false defectors that came out with a false story then lived the rest of their life in the United States. For 10 years, from 1964 to 1974, Angleton tore the CIA apart looking for a mole who wasn't there. Angleton's suspicions destroyed the careers and reputations of about 50 CIA officers in the agency's Soviet division. 
he suspected that all of them were secretly working for Moscow. They were relegated to bureaucratic backwaters, forced out of their jobs, and hounded for years. But not one of those suspected traitors was guilty of betraying the United States. Angleton was deceiving himself. The only thing that stopped him was a reporter, Seymour Hirsch. The New York Times reported today that the Central Intelligence Agency had consistently violated the terms of its charter from the 1950s until the end of the Nixon administration. Hirsch published an expose in the New York Times at Christmas time in 1974. I remember it well. Amazing allegations. He wrote that a huge CIA operation had spied on Americans, liberals and leftists, who opposed the war in Vietnam. That included spying on at least 10,000 Americans. The CIA gave particular attention to anti-war and other dissident groups in this country. The allegations of domestic spying have caused some sizable storm waves to break over the CIA. And it was clear from the story that people inside the CIA, the FBI, and Congress were laying a lot of the blame on Jim Angleton. I was 18 back then. I didn't know a lot about the CIA. But as a kid, I had loved the spy versus spy cartoons in Mad Magazine. And I'd watched Boris and Natasha, the Russian spies, on Rocky and Bullwinkle. Allow me to introduce myself. Boris Badenov, world's greatest no good. But real-life spying? All I knew was that the CIA worked overseas in the back alleys of the world. They didn't spy on Americans. That was a job for J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI. The New York Times story led directly to Angleton's departure from the agency. Earlier today, James Angleton announced his resignation. I think the time comes to all men when they no longer serve their country. The director kicked him out, and it sparked the first real congressional investigation of the CIA. The Senate voted overwhelmingly today to set up a special committee to investigate charges of domestic spying and other wrongdoing by intelligence agencies. The Church Committee was formed one month after Hirsch's story was published, and it was named after its chairman, Senator Frank Church from Idaho. In 1975, he went on Meet the Press to discuss his work. Now, why is this investigation important? I'll tell you why. I know the capacity that is there to make tyranny total in America. And we must see to it that this agency and all agencies that possess this technology operate within the law and under proper supervision so that we never cross over that abyss. I followed the hearings through the newspaper. A few of them, the most spectacular ones, were televised. Church's committee uncovered some of the agency's deepest secrets. The CIA had overthrown the freely elected leaders of Iran and Guatemala. For years, it had run mind control experiments with LSD on unsuspecting Americans, human guinea pigs. The CIA had also plotted with the mob, trying to assassinate Fidel Castro. And it had, indeed, spied on Americans in violation of its charter. 
Angleton testified at the hearings. We'll hear his testimony and about its impact in our next segment. Good morning again from the Senate caucus room. A former CIA super spy, James Angleton, is to be the whole show before the committee this morning. I'm Jim Lara with Impact Correspondent. Angleton and other leaders of the CIA had hidden things from presidents. For one thing, the CIA had been opening Americans' mail for more than 20 years. Angleton was working with the FBI and the Postmaster General, intercepting letters and communications between Americans and people behind the Iron Curtain. They steamed the letters open, read them, and replaced them. The president wanted to be informed. He wanted recommendations. Not only was he misinformed, but when he reconsidered authorizing the opening of the mail five days later and revoked it, the CIA didn't pay the slightest bit of attention to him, did it? The commander-in-chief, as you say. I said I had no satisfactory answer to... You have no satisfactory answer? No, I do not. When Senator Walter Mondale asked him about the mail opening operation, Angleton made his view on the law very clear. What was your understanding of the legality of the covert mail operation? That it was illegal. That it was illegal. Now you're an attorney. Angleton wasn't apologizing. It didn't matter to him that it was illegal. He thought it was necessary. He had said in a closed-door deposition, it is inconceivable that a secret intelligence arm of the government has to comply with all the overt orders of the government. So that a judgment was made with which you concurred that although covert mail openings were illegal, the good that flowed from it in terms of anticipating threats to this country through the use of this counterintelligence technique made it worthwhile nevertheless. That is correct. Excuse me, sir. After Angleton was fired, he gave interviews to almost any reporter who asked. He kept his air of mystery, a gray eminence in a gray suit. But he kept one of his darkest secrets. The story of how his mole hunts ripped the CIA apart, destroyed the careers of innocent Americans, and nearly killed the practice of counterintelligence. That didn't come out until after he died. That story became his legacy, and it's hard to absolve him. As T.S. Eliot wrote, after such knowledge, what forgiveness? The church hearings and their power to expose secrets made me want to be a newspaper reporter. If I learned to cover the cops in the courts, maybe I could cover the CIA one day to get into the minds of the people who ran it. And in 1987, the year Ankleton died, I began to cover the CIA, first for the Philadelphia Inquirer and then for the New York Times. A lot had changed after the CIA fired Ankleton. As John Seifert told me, the agency undertook a major course correction. It was viewed 
quite clearly by the people who were involved in, in those kind of operations that Angleton's time was, was damaging to the agency, that he had overreacted. It, it was viewed that Angleton had been in that position. He was the head of counterintelligence for too long. He had t- gained too much power. He saw spies under the bed everywhere he turned, and, and you know a lot of innocent people's careers were ruined in the process. So by the time we got there, it was the view that seeing the Soviets at the time as 10 feet tall and that every Soviet person we met was some sort of trick or some sort of double agent to, to mess with us, uh, we sort of looked down upon. And we were, we were very focused on rebuilding that capability. If the CIA needed a kick in the pants to speed up the rebuilding of counterintelligence after Angleton, it came in 1985. That year, it suddenly became very clear that every branch of the American military-industrial complex was penetrated by Americans working for the enemy. And now, spies in the news. This has been a very active year for spy stories. There was a number of spy cases that happened to break at that time, which sort of increased the paranoia in Washington of what what the Soviets might be up to. And, and probably the biggest one was, was John Walker. Former U.S. Navy man John Walker was arrested earlier this year, accused of directing a family spy ring that sold U.S. naval secrets to the Soviet Union. And there was some thought, you know, as, as, as that case broke and he was arrested, that, you know, there was a point of time where the, the Russians could have essentially potentially won a war with the United States because they had such insight into our, our Navy and our military. And there, But there was others. Jonathan Pollard pleaded guilty this week to spying for Israel. Ronald Pelton was convicted of selling top secrets to Russia. They are just two of 27 individuals arrested for spying in the last two and a half years. And high-profile court proceedings have brought intense scrutiny not just to the spies, but to the secrets they gave away. But after the year of the spy had passed, in 1986, a terrible realization started to dawn on the CIA. Almost all the Russian spies working for the United States, sources the CIA and the FBI had painstakingly recruited over the years, they were disappearing, one by one by one. They were being captured and killed by the KGB. What had gone wrong? Was it a wiretap or a bug at the American embassy in Moscow? Was it a breach of security? at the CIA's super-secret communication center in Virginia? Or was there an enemy working from within? And that's the whole essence of counterintelligence work, is both sides prey on the fact that you don't know many things with with certainty. You you know things in gray, in different shades of gray, and the, the effort you're describing certainly fits the category of an effort in shades of gray. As it turned out, there was a moment and he ran rampant for nine years. In April 1985, Aldrich Ames had walked into the Soviet embassy in Washington and started selling secrets to the KGB. They paid him a total of $2.7 million. Aldrich Ames's betrayal led to the deaths of at least 10 of America's most valuable foreign agents. Their executions were a closely held secret inside the agency, and inside the KGB, too. The Soviets put great effort into protecting Ames by throwing the mole hunters at the CIA and the FBI 
off his trail. And the Russians instituted quite an aggressive um, effort to sort of spin information, make us conclude that any problems we might have or cases that were wrapped up had other explanations other than there was another mole. They would put double agents in different parts of the world to give us pieces of information that might suggest that perhaps our communication system was not as robust as we thought, or perhaps you know, an officer in Moscow had made a, a critical mistake which led them to the right conclusion to arrest somebody. Uh, unfortunately, in the 1980s in particular, we had a hard time grasping two truths that ultimately bit us. One was that we could be penetrated. I, there was a fairly high degree of arrogance inside CIA in the 1980s that the Russians had not recruited one of our own, as we would say. Uh, the second thing they drew on, they dangled one of their own officers to convince us of the disinformation they were giving us. They dangled one of their own officers. In other words, the KGB sent a false defector who appeared out of nowhere and pretended to explain what had gone wrong. His goal, in reality, was to mystify and mislead the CIA. And then he disappeared. Back to Moscow. And that was something we did not believe they would do. And I have to say it was a very bold, audacious, and effective operation while they ran it. They did use it to considerable advantage in the early years of the Mole Wars. Ames hadn't even bothered to cover his tracks. He figured the KGB would do that for him. The Russians did their damnedest, and they didn't just try to hide Ames's spying from the Americans. They also kept knowledge of Ames, a deep secret inside Russia itself. Here again, Alexander Vasilyev. I worked in the U.S. Department for two and a half years. I had no idea we had Aldrich James or something, somebody like him. No idea. To keep Ames a secret, the KGB ran a disinformation operation on its own people, coming up with a cover story to explain how they kept uncovering the CIA's people inside Russia. They couldn't tell us anything about Aldrich Ames, even to those of us who worked in the U.S. Department. So to cover his traces and to divert even our ideas, they spread a rumor they found in our headquarters a lighter, and there was a camera inside that lighter. And the security services started investigating while they were looking for the owner of that lighter, and they found them. So this is how they uh, discovered the whole network. It was uh, an example of an active measure inside the KGB intelligence service. It wasn't until 1993 that the CIA and the FBI decided to go after Ames. They looked at his financial records, and they saw that he'd bought a nice new house and a Jaguar with cash. They bugged and wiretapped him, searched his trash, and in it, they found notes to his Russian case officer in Washington. The proof. The FBI finally arrested him on President's Day, February 1994. John Cipher again. After Ames, I think this post-Angleton era where there was sort of an assumption that Angleton overreached, 
he saw everybody as spies. I think we then went through a period where, you know, we maybe looked too much the other way that like, hey, listen, you know, not everybody's a spy. We shouldn't, you know, be looking at all our people askance. You know, after Ames, I think things sort of measured out to realize, hey, you know, it's, it's part of the business. If you're in, if you're working a bank, you know, you might steal money and, and, you know, the bad people. And there's bad people in every profession that we need to be sophisticated and serious about this. Angleton's legacy lived on past his death. I discussed his impact with Rolf Mauch Larson. Well, it affected me a great deal, particularly as I began to realize that I, I had actually uh, to increase my depth of understanding of the Russian capabilities and mindset. So I, I regarded him very highly as a uh, mentor in counterintelligence. Now, I would say, hasten to add, that he probably did more damage to CIA than the Russians did with his internal mohunts that ruined careers of many fine officers who were, of course, not Russian spies, and he became paranoid. When FBI agents finally searched Aldrich Ames's office at the CIA, they found a top-secret report. It was entitled, What Angleton Thought. It detailed Angleton's obsessive search for a Soviet mole. It recounted how he scorched the earth of the CIA, tarred innocent officers, and ruined lives. After Ames was arrested, I wanted to talk to him as much as the FBI did. Before he pleaded guilty and began serving a life sentence in solitary confinement at the Supermax prison in Florence, Colorado, he was locked up in the city jail in Alexandria, Virginia. I took a chance and went to the jail. I figured it was a long shot. I showed up unannounced. Nobody stopped me or questioned me, which amazed me. I said I was a reporter and they let me in. The jail, like most jails, smelled of sweat, Lysol, and fried bologna sandwiches. We met in a holding pen. He was wearing prison coveralls and high-top sneakers. No shoelaces. We talked for an hour through the bars, face-to-face, about two feet apart. On the surface, he was smooth, sometimes charming. Inside, an emptiness where pain or rage or shame should have been. Maybe that was the cost of a secret life. A hollow soul. At the end of my hour with Ames, I gave him my home phone number, and he called me seven times over the next few weeks. The phone would ring. Would I accept a collect call from the Alexandria jail? I did, and I'd grab my notebook. On the last call, I asked him why he did it. And at first, he gave me some grandiose gobbledygook about wanting to level the playing field of the Cold War. He said he was thinking to himself, I know what the Soviet Union is really all about, and I know what's best for foreign policy and national security, and I'm going to act on that. But he knew he was deluding himself. And then he confessed it was really all about the money. He later said as much 
in an interview with ABC. Well, the reasons that I that I did what I did in uh, April of 1985 uh, were personal, banal, and amounted really to kind of greed and folly. Simple as that. And why, I asked him, did he think he could get away with it? He knew why. American counterintelligence was in shambles. Ames got away with it for so long because the CIA was afraid of smearing innocent people. It could not police itself properly. The legacy of misguided mole hunts made it extraordinarily difficult for the agency to conduct an effective one. Ames told me that it couldn't be done because, as he said, you would wind up with Jim Angleton's doing Angletonian things. There were 20,000 people at the CIA. You couldn't spy on all the spies. And there was the problem. The agency was too big to control. Ames told me, the minute you get big, you get like the KGB. Or you get like us. We'll never escape from Angleton's Hall of Mirrors. There's a reason they call espionage the world's second oldest profession. It's been going on for centuries, but it's not a game. Sometimes people's lives are on the line, and the fate of nations is at stake. Ever since 1948, the CIA had dreamed of breaking the Soviet stranglehold on Poland. Then, the agency was burned by another brilliant Soviet deception. And for more than 30 years, the mission was impossible. Then, in the 1980s, the covert operations of the CIA helped propel Poland on the road to freedom. And that set off a chain reaction that brought down the Soviet Empire. The CIA didn't do it with guns or gold. They did it by smuggling in the tools of a free press. It's a great story. And that's the next episode of Whirlwind. Whirlwind is presented by Cadence 13, Jigsaw Productions, and Prologue Projects. The show is written by me, Tim Weiner, and produced by Noel Mosban, Andrew Parsons, and Leon Nefa, with editorial support from Madison White. The story is based on my book, The Folly and the Glory, America, Russia, and Political Warfare. Whirlwind is executive produced by Chris Corcoran, Alex Gibney, Stephen Fisher, Stacey Offman, Richard Perello, Joey Mara, and John Schmidt. They said it couldn't be done. 
They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. <laughs> and now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners. We got listeners. No way. Amazing. Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last.